Some of you may remember when we built this, this building here and uh, the sheetrockers were working in here, just about halfway between that back door right there and the prayer room door, the hall door, right in that hallway, right behind where Mike Kruger's sitting in the hallway out there, a sheetrocker died. His heart stopped beating. He was 35 years old, I think, maybe. His heart stopped beating, and he was laying on the ground right there. And a carpenter that was on the scene, first of all, started giving him CPR. Uh, they called 911. Um, I was in my old office, just around the corner there in the old building. The carpenter came, and he got me, and he said, uh, we need to pray for this guy. He just collapsed out here and his, his heart's not beating. He has no heartbeat. And I said, well, we have a defibrillator. We could use the defibrillator on him. Well, by the time I got out there, um, the rescue squad had already come. It had been about five minutes. I didn't even know this was going on. He came and got me. He had, the carpenter had hit his chest a few times. He was pumping him a little bit. A policeman was at Edgewood uh, that he heard the call and he came over immediately and was doing CPR. The rescue squad got here, and he was as gray as gray could be. I mean, he was dead. And they put those patches on him, and they thumped him three or four times, and he woke up. And before they left here with him that day, he was chatting with them as they loaded him into the ambulance just a few minutes later. The end of that story is the next Easter, um, he was at church on Easter Sunday that day, and he stuck around. Uh, I think Pastor Tim went and visited him in the hospital, and he stuck around for a while after church, and he said to me, he said, I want you to show me where it happened. I want to see exactly where I was, because he had no memory of it. I want to see exactly where it happened. So I walked him out here. We still weren't using this building yet, it was still in the old building, I walked him out and said, you were laying right here and you were as gray as a ghost. I thought you were a dead man. I said, God's given you a new lease on life. Don't waste the opportunity that he's given you. Pastor Tim died in his backyard. Nancy saw him laying back there dead. How long were you gone? 14, 15 minutes, something like that, till uh, they could get a phone call to the rescue squad and then he came back to life, and uh, there he sits right there. Do you remember any of that? No, he doesn't remember anything. I said, did you see heaven or anything? This is our chance to write a book and make millions right now. <laughs> he said, I have no memory of anything. <laughs> but anyway, we do have a defibrillator in the building uh, for just uh, such uh, cases, should they, uh, should they happen and we know that the power behind the equipment is, is very powerful batteries uh, that, that are used, or electricity if you're in a hospital. Some of you that work in the medical profession have probably been a part of these events before, uh, maybe in reviving people, um, or others perhaps have had that, had that um, situation before in your life. I know our uh, Dawson's not here today, he's in college now, Dawson Andrews, uh, Dan and I were at the hospital with him, we watched them hit him, I think it was nine or ten times, I don't know where Dan is, but when that morning, that Sunday morning, nine or ten times he got paddled in the hospital as a, I think he was 15 years old at the time, and we watched them doing it to him uh, on the bed. It's a very frightening experience um, when it happens, but Dawson is doing well uh, today as well. But those of you that work in the medical profession know that because of the power that's in those paddles or in those pads, 
that you're not supposed to touch the person lest some of that charge come across to you and you possibly be injured as well. But in a sense, these people are being resurrected from the dead. If they were left go, they would be gone. They would not come back on their own. But their resurrection is temporal because the situation, the problem that was created has some root source. And if that root source is not treated, if that's not cared for, then they will die again, probably sooner rather than later. And even if that root source is taken care of, they're still going to die. Pastor Tim, someday in this life, barring the rapture of the church, that body that you see is still going to die. That resurrection was not a permanent resurrection. But I want to talk about today something that's more permanent than that. I want to talk about the resurrection at the end of the age. And I want to talk about the power that's behind that resurrection. Not just, not just a jolt of electricity to start your heart again, but a power that goes beyond that, that jolts you into life eternal, spiritually. And so we're going to see the power source behind the resurrection today. Lord, thank you that you have given us the resurrection as hope for eternal life for believers as followers of Christ. And Lord, we know that this world isn't the end all of everything, as many believe, Father, in futility, as we talked about just a week or so ago. But we have great hope because of the resurrection of Christ. Lord, help us to understand that power and how that power can even be utilized by us today in this life in reaching others for Christ. So guide us now through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 15, Paul uh, is answering questions again about the resurrection of Christ. And he clears up some confusion about our resurrection as well. We're not there yet, but when we get to the second half of this chapter, which is a very lengthy chapter, 58 verses, when we get to the second half, we're going to see some details about the resurrection and how it all works and how it looks. Um, recently, we... Uh, saw several eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Um, the last time we saw challenges to the resurrection um, and that consistency in teaching and truth and testimony are necessary to dispel those challenges. So today Paul continues his argument for the resurrection by revealing the power behind the resurrection. Let's begin with this again, the fact of the resurrection the fact of the resurrection. In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but, and once again we're transitioning away from these arguments and the fact that it's futile if we are living without Christ, he says, but Christ is risen from the dead. Dispelling all of these arguments, he is risen from the dead. That is a well-established fact among the body of Christ. I want to go back to verse 5 and read down through these evidences and these arguments and demonstrate again the, the proofs of the resurrection that we have scripturally. Beginning in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as, one, as by one born out of due time. 
For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, <coughs> excuse me, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen." And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, but now Christ is risen from the dead. So Paul, again, makes this point that if he's not raised, then no one can be raised. But the fact is, and the evidence supports the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and he is alive today at the right hand of God. And since he was raised and since he is alive, it is possible for others, including us, to be raised as well, as we will look at next here as well as down the line in the remaining portions of this chapter. The evidence is overwhelming biblically and for us spiritually, that the resurrection is real. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he is only the beginning, in verse 20, going on. He's only the beginning of the resurrections. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep are those who have died. This refers to believers that are dead Since their physical death is not permanent, they will be raised from the dead eventually. And that term frequently then is used of Christians who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They've died, but their death is not permanent. So the church would refer to their deaths as sleeping because they're coming back. They're not gone for good. They're eventually going to be raised from the dead. We see that same phrase used a couple of times in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in verses 13, uh, 13 through 18 in reference to that, that the section that talks about the rapture of the church, being caught up together with him in the clouds. And we're going to look at that uh, chapter in more detail here in a couple of weeks, so we're not going to look at that today. But it uses that same terminology about sleeping, and it's not talking about soul sleep. It's talking about that we're physically gone, but one day we will be physically there again at the resurrection of Christ. Now, when we do die, you are not asleep. Your body is asleep. You, spiritually, are in the presence of Christ. As the scriptures tell us, Paul's great struggle in Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why he struggled, because he he knew it was more profitable for him to stay on and and teach the church and help the church and encourage the church. But, But to die right now in prison, that would be so wonderful because I would be with the Lord. So that was a great struggle for him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
the fact that Jesus Christ here is called the first fruits, we need to understand what the first fruits were, what they referred to. So in the Old Testament, when they talked about the first fruits, this was the sample of the full crop that was going to be harvested later. But what the farmers, the growers were supposed to do, they were supposed to pick the first fruits, the very first of their harvest, they were to bring to the priest. And they were to offer that to the priest as the sample, as a sample of what was to come. But this was to be offered to the priests as an offering to the Lord. The whole crop would be harvested later, but it couldn't be harvested until after the offering was given to the priests. So the first fruits were used as an installment, as a, as a guarantee that there's more to come. This is just a portion. This is just a small percentage of what's yet to come. And so I'm offering this portion to God as an offering, and then I will go back and reap the rest of the harvest to sell and to live off of and to give away. But this is just the first fruits, a sample of what the real harvest is going to be like, what the real harvest is going to look like. So how is Jesus the first fruit? How is he similar? How is his resurrection similar to the first fruit offerings? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says that he, that's Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So he's the head. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. He is the head of the body, the church, who he who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. So how is Jesus' offering similar? Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead in a glorified body. The very first, and at this time, the only one to receive a glorified body at this point in time. All others that have been raised from the dead during his ministry or who came out of the graves on that first resurrection morning. We read part of that in the, in the scripture reading today. I want to go back and read that to you again, because I don't think we understand the power of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, his resurrection was so powerful, dead people around him were coming out of the graves. You think that didn't freak Jerusalem out? It wasn't just the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ that caused them consternation. What are all these dead people doing walking around the city. Verse uh, 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So these were saints. These were believers. These were believers who had died. They had fallen asleep, and they were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the whole city and appeared to many people. So more evidence of the power of the resurrection. Dead people that were just around where Jesus rose from the dead just came out of their graves as well. But they did not yet have their glorified bodies. They died again, just like Lazarus died again, just like Pastor Tim will eventually in this life die again. Because we have not yet received what Jesus Christ had, the first fruit, the glorified body, the glorified state. The resurrection is the hope. It's the hope that, that we have in this life that this is not all there is. I want to get, read you a verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 23. 
Uh, Verse 22, just to pick up the context. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And he's, he's speaking of the revelation, the second coming of Christ. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit... So because of the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, we now have the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. The moment we trust in Christ, we receive the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is our first fruits. The Holy Spirit is what God gives us as a down payment of what's to come in the future. The the communion that we can have with God, the relationship that we can have with God, the confidence that we can have in God. That's the Holy Spirit. He is our down payment. Our first fruits, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. You see, Jesus Christ's resurrection, the indwelling Holy Spirit for us, that is our hope of the coming body, the coming glorified body, when we will ultimately be sanctified in perfection before God. There are many who will be resurrected in that resurrection. So who's included in that? We'll talk about that in our next point. But the fact of the resurrection has been established. Those that have the Holy Spirit know this is true. Every believer is confident in the resurrection. Only the skeptics, only the unbelievers are not confident in the resurrection. It's because They have not yet received the first fruits of the Spirit of God to be able to have that hope, to be able to have that guarantee, to be able to believe the evidence of the resurrection. And there's also the false teachings that are out there in the world today because uh, we don't like to talk about God's judgment. We don't like to talk about accountability for sin Uh, And when I say we, I'm talking about the world, the culture, the sin-laden culture in which we live. We would rather think of God as being this really nice guy and that he talks kind of gruff, kind of like parents. You know, we make a lot of threats. Hey, stop that or I'm going to else or whatever. You know, we give all those threats and then we never do it. And that's why kids never respond because we never do it. They think God's going to be like us. And then in the end, he's making all these threats to just keep us in line. And then in the end, he's going to go, ah, come on. I was just kidding. You guys, you guys come too. Everybody comes in the end. That's what we want to believe about God. That's the hope of a teaching called universalism. Universalism. What does the Bible teach and what does universalism teach and which one is true And which one are you going to choose to believe? So let's talk about the few of the resurrection. The few of the resurrection. Back in 2017, there was a number released, a guesstimate. And this is only a guesstimate. And this is probably uh, not completely accurate, but probably close. Because I'll say it's not completely accurate because they say that Homo sapiens, us human beings have been on the earth, we evolved to the point to where we're like we are now, or close to now, about 50,000 years ago. So they're saying in 50,000 years, based upon their growth charts and different things like that, based upon bad science and other things, um, they guesstimate that since 
that time period, there have been about 108 billion people on the planet that have been born as human beings. Now, with what I believe and what the Bible teaches, this earth is only about 6,000, maybe 6,500 years old. But with the growth that we have seen and then the people destroyed and then the growth again according to biblical numbers, it's probably a similar number. It's probably over 100 billion people that have lived on the planet since then. They guesstimate that by 2050, that number will have grown to about 113 billion people. So about 5 billion more people will be born between now and um, 2050. How many of those will take part in the resurrection of life? If you think about 100 and let's say um, right now the rapture comes today, there's 115 uh, or 110 billion people that were ever born. How many of those people will be in heaven? How many of those will take part in the resurrection to life? Well, let's start with our understanding here in verse 21. Certain death and possible life. Certain death and possible life. In verse 21, it says this, For since by man came death. So who is the guy that is responsible for all the death in the world? And the Bible teaches that that, that guy is Adam. Adam was the guy that brought death into the world. From Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This should be a familiar passage to you. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So because of the seed of man, because all children are born of a man at some way, shape, or form, it's the seed of man that causes there to be a child conceived, that seed carries the sin nature. So every person that's born is born with a sin nature. It is unavoidable. There's only one person that was born without a sin nature, and that was Christ, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a man. So that was a miracle birth. But Adam is the guy that brought sin into the world. So except for a few exceptions, like Enoch, who walked with God and was not. God took him before the flood. Enoch walked with God and was not. And Elijah, who we know went to heaven in a whirlwind, in a fiery chariot, um, except for those two, everyone else of these 108, 110 billion people are going to die. The only other exceptions will be, will be people raptured, and the rapture of the church, they are raptured in these bodies, and then they're changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which is described later in this chapter. Or those at the end of the age, at the end of the tribulation or the millennial kingdom uh, period, that are believers that will be changed at that point for eternity future. Other than that, everybody's going to experience physical death in this life. We can't ex escape that. You can do everything you can. You can develop all these great medical uh, ways to live longer. Uh, you can eat the best organic food. You can uh, live a great lifestyle. Um, you can freeze your body. You can do anything you want. You're going to die. That, that's an inescapable fact. We're all going to die. So, death is certain. There's no way talking yourself out of that. It's certain you're going to die. 
So the question is, what's this possible life? And if I could live on, how does that look? Going on in verse 21, For since by man came death, by man, do you notice in your Bible, in my Bible, it's correctly capitalized, that man. For by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So why is man capitalized? It's because that man is referring to a divine presence, namely Jesus Christ, who was not only the Son of God, he was God. He is the second person of the Godhead. So whereas Adam brought certain death, Jesus brings the possibility of eternal life and resurrection from the dead. So why is death certain and the resurrection and life only possible? After all, the next verse indicates, in verse 22, that everybody's going to be resurrected. And this is a verse that the universalists like to turn to and say, look, in the end, we all end up in the same place. Look at verse 22. Universalism. So what is universalism? Well, universalism is the teaching that basically all roads lead to heaven. Whether it be different religions, whether it be being agnostic, whether it be being an atheist, uh, whatever you are, whatever you choose to believe, and by the way, you're believing something. So everybody, even if those that don't believe in God, they're believing that there is no God and if you ask them to prove that there's no God, they can't prove that there's no God. And you physically can't prove that there is God. And so there's this stalemate of who you're going to believe. And so they're believing, they're having faith, there is no God. We have faith, there is God. And the scriptures are true. So everybody believes something. And so universalism teaches that everybody, your belief system leads to the same door. We're just like this big funnel we're all these religions out here, we're funneling down, and the closer we get to, the, to eternity, that we all end up at the same gate, and bam, we're in heaven together. Whatever heaven looks like, according to your religion, my religion, whatever it turns out to be, all roads lead to heaven. It's, uh, it's, it's universalism, you maybe don't hear that term, but it is, it's the prevailing belief system that runs across many religions today, including Christianity. Um, many Christians, so-called Christians, um, professing Christians, would believe in, in um, universalism. They would say, you know, we're not going to criticize other religions. Uh, they believe what they believe, and they're very sincere people. And if sincerity saved people, they would be saved. But it's not sincerity that saves people. It's salvation through Christ. So sincerity, don't be fooled by sincerity. Sincerity does not bring salvation. Only Christ can bring salvation. So it is a prevailing uh, belief system. Um, many of, of uh, our own unsaved family and friends and perhaps even untaught believers would say that all roads lead to heaven. So this is something that's around us. It's you, you think hard enough about people you know, and you, you probably are related to them, or you maybe uh, work with them, or they're your neighbors or something. They're, they would agree with this, that all, all roads lead to heaven. It's very popular. It's a very politically correct religion, really. The, the politically correct religion in this country today is universalism. 
It's, you know, just we need to be tolerant of everybody because we're all going to end up in the same place anyway. We're all in the same thing together. So it's a, very, it's a very prevalent and very dangerous teaching. Sincerity and tolerance are, are very important, and being a good person is very important, but that's not how you come to Christ. Again, is this what the Bible teaches? So look at verse 22 now. So it says, For as in Adam all die, so everybody that are in Adam, they die. So that makes sense, right? If you're in Adam, you die. And you're, if you're here today, you're in Adam. Not you're an Adam, you're in Adam. You're one of his descendants. We're all related when you go back far enough. But yeah, even when you go to Noah and his sons, we're related. But in Adam, you're going to die. Even so, if you're in Christ, you will be made alive. So, what people are saying here is these words for all. They point to these words for all. These two alls, they would say, teach universalism. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So the question becomes, what does that second all refer to? Does that refer to the all that are in Adam? Or does that refer to the all that are in Christ? You see, it's very important to make that distinction. In order to make that distinction, we have to look at the rest of the Scriptures to see what God communicates about these, these, uh, these issues. So in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so we're a similar type of verse here, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So a different word is used there. It's not all that were disobedient. Now there's many. There are many that are going to be followers of Christ. There are many that will follow him as believers in Jesus Christ. So by this man's obedience, his going to the cross, his dying for us, we can be made righteous. So how does that happen? Righteousness is only possible if you now become a descendant of Christ and not just a descendant of Adam. Because naturally... The scriptures tell us, by nature, we are sons of who? Not just Adam, we're sons of the devil. In John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And these are the unbelieving religious leaders that Christ is talking to. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. How many in here have ever told a lie? Okay, when you tell a lie, you are following your father, the devil, because he's the father of lies. And that's your sin nature that's exposing you for what you really are. When you lie, it exposes you to yourself of what you really are, apart from Christ. But through Christ, here's the blessing, through Christ, we can be born again into the family of God. We can be born again into the family of God. In Galatians Chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So you're not born a son of God naturally. 
You're born a son of God spiritually. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you, are, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God in John 3. And here Paul emphasizes that point. You are all sons of God. He's talking to the church at Galatia, the churches of Galatia. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's your faith, your trust in Christ's resurrection, in his finished work, to become a child of God. Also in verse 29 of the same chapter. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you become an heir of all the promises of Christ. You see, we're not automatically a son of God like we're automatically a son of, of Adam. The moment you're conceived, you become a son of Adam. We have to receive Christ to become a son of God. We have to put our faith and trust in the shed blood of Christ to be born again, to experience that spiritual birth. So the second all in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, those in Christ, all those that are in Christ will be saved. They will be made alive. They will be raised from the dead. So those that put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you today, and you know in your heart, and you took this Lord's table, and you contemplated your eternal destiny and your relationship with Christ, if you in your heart believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins, and you've put your faith in him, you will be raised from the dead for all eternity. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. And no one can take that away from you. It's up to you to make for sure. To make sure you've made that decision. And most of us know that. And we're confident in that. And even though we have doubts from time to time, uh, because of our sin nature and because of our propensity to still sin, even after we're believers, you know, it, we're susceptible to doubt. Say, oh, man, how could a Christian think this way? How could a Christian do that? You'll, you'll think that about yourself. And that's why we, we, we partake of the Lord's table, to give us an opportunity to just restore a right relationship with Christ and put ourselves in the position that we should be. I encourage you, if you've never made that decision today, think about that and recognize your need. Recognize your sin as a son of Adam and put your faith in Christ. And if you have questions more about that, please speak with me or speak with one of the elders afterwards in the prayer room. We don't want anyone to leave here that's not sure of the resurrection because we never know. We live in a dangerous world. We drive like death machines out there and we fly in death machines and we, we're around people that aren't even paying attention when they're driving death machines. It's a dangerous world. I mean, we can be wiped out in a moment. It's good to be prepared. So the power behind the resurrection is the fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection. He was raised with a glorified body, and all that place their faith in him will be resurrected with glorified bodies one day. And we'll talk about when that happens in the weeks ahead. And we will reign forever with God serving him in whatever capacity that looks like. And this won't be very many comparatively to all that have been born. I mean, if you think there's 110 billion people, if the rapture happened today, 110 people have been born, and you think about the 10% factor, that means maybe only 10 to 15 billion people are going to be saved. Maybe. I don't know. Only God knows that number. I, I can't say that. 
But I know it's not the same number that was born. I know that much. The Bible makes that abundantly clear that the, the road to destruction is wide and the road to God is narrow. And there are, in Jesus' words, few who find it. So that indicates there won't be many comparatively to those that were born. So as we continue in this chapter in the weeks ahead, we will, we will see more details of how the resurrection works, how we are changed, what we will be like. Until then, um, we need to think about these concepts here in our preparation for the resurrection. I have a few more verses I want to show you as we close here. Number one, aside from making sure that we are one of the few, we need to look forward to the resurrection. It should not be something that we fear, but we read Romans 8.23 you know, we need to be groaning within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. We shouldn't be afraid or like, oh, please, don't let the rapture come. You know, I, anybody ever think that in their life? I remember when I was engaged to get married. I was like, don't let the rapture come. I want to get married before. And you, did anybody else think that way? I, I was pretty selfish. But, um, and I had a friend that said the same thing. But here's, here's what you think about later in life when you really understand this, is that, there's nothing better than your glorified body. Nothing is better than that. And so if we get raptured today, I, oh man, I wish I, I, I'm going to have so much fun tomorrow. I, I hope it doesn't come till after tomorrow. We don't think that way because there's nothing better than our glorified state. Everything here is in preparation for that. So we look forward to that. Number two, we should not take advantage of the resurrection and, and live in sin knowing that we will stand before Christ one day. Uh, verse 9, therefore, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. And that's not for eternity. That's not for whether you're going to heaven or hell. That's for uh, rewards that will be used in service to God. In verse 11, knowing therefore that we're going to stand before God, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So because of that, we persuade men. We, we, we encourage people to serve God, to walk with Him, because we're going to stand before Him one day. That is a certainty. And then thirdly, we should comfort one another with the hope of the resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18 after Paul talks about the resurrection, and we'll talk more about this in the future, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's a great comfort when you're dealing with death to a loved one, is to know that the resurrection is coming. So uh, last year, maybe a couple of years ago, uh, somehow, I don't even remember how, but we ended up in St. Louis with two cars. And we were driving home late one night. It was uh, probably uh, 11 o'clock at night we maybe left to drive home. And Cindy normally would be riding, and I would be driving, and she rests well in the car. But she had to drive a car. And so as we were leaving, she goes, we, you need to be on the phone with me. We need to talk, uh, or I'm going to fall asleep. And I said, uh, okay. So we got on the phone. The moment we got in the cars, we, we got on the phone, and we didn't turn the phones off till we got home. So we were on the phone for two, three hours almost on the phone as we talked most of the time sometimes you know after you talked a while and you're just the white line fever going by and you're you're thinking you know um you know above other things and you so you just stop talking and then all of a sudden she goes are you still there yeah i'm here you know and then we talk again but at one point in the trip home she's she's like you've got to talk to me 
or I'm going to die tonight. I know I'm going to die tonight. She was confident that she was going to die tonight. She said, I know I'm going to die tonight. I'm like, honey, relax. You're saved. You're going to be in heaven. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, you know, that was all tongue-in-cheek, of course, but the reality is the same. The reality is the same. You know, we don't fear death because we know we're going to be with God one day. And so we don't fear death nor the resurrection because that concept gives believers great hope and great comfort. And we all have that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Lord, what a great promise it is. And it's, it's assured. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of that. Lord, thank you for giving us that assurance as followers of Christ. Forgive us for times when we doubt. Um, and Lord, may we be messengers of this great message to others around us that need to have the same hope of eternal life. And so thank you, and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.